Welcome to the Land Ethic Podcast, dedicated to naturalism, conservation, and stewardship. I'm Dylan Banyasco, a landscape designer and outdoorsman from Central Texas. I'm learning from individuals and organizations that are working to improve our relationship with land. Subjects may range from regenerative agriculture to ethical hunting and wildlife management. Please subscribe on your preferred app and follow Land Ethic Podcast on social media for updates, episode releases, and more. Kurt Holtzen is a senior field advisor for the Wood River Wolf Project, based in central Idaho. He has 20 years of agricultural experience and a decade of experience observing and tracking wolves in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. He performs predator surveys, wildlife camera monitoring, and investigates depredations as part of a larger effort to conserve wolf populations in an area with an abundance of livestock. Kurt's experience photographing wildlife in Yellowstone is what altered his impression of wolves and their role in the ecosystem, leading him to his current work in carnivore coexistence. We discussed all things wolf, their ecological niche and relation to their prey, the politics of wolf management, and some of the non-lethal methods that are being used to deter them. To see more of Kurt's work, follow him at Wilderness Trails Project on Instagram and check out the Wood River Wolf Project as well. Hope you enjoy. All right, I'm joined by Kurt Holtzen. Kurt, how are you, man? I'm doing really well, Dylan, and uh, thanks for having me on. Yeah, thank you. Uh, you reached out to talk about predator and, and livestock relations and your coexistence work with them, and uh, I'm really curious about what you do. It sounds like something that uh, we could use a lot more of, but uh, tell me about where you are and kind of the landscape that you're working in. Yeah, so um, in central Idaho, uh, kind of the southern part of central Idaho, uh, Haley is the town I live in, and uh, Sawtooth National Forest and the Pioneer Mountains. So. I haven't been to that part of the country. I've been to Yellowstone, but uh, you're, what, three or four hours away? Yeah, we're about four hours um, west of uh, Yellowstone National Park. Okay, nice. And uh, you're located near some really interesting geological formations and things like that? Yeah, so Craters of the Moon National Monument is uh, very close to here, and it's very, very close to uh, the ranch that I'm working with. Um, in fact, it borders uh, the ranch, and it's a big lava flow, about 600,000 years old. Uh, it's actually the same hot spot that is now in Yellowstone National Park. Really? Okay, I didn't realize that. Craters of the Moon. Um, yeah, that's a place I've, I had never heard of. And then I just saw it popped up on my Google search. I'm like, what the hell is that place? It looks like yeah, it's different. <laughs> <laughs> Do you spend any time in there? I have a little bit, uh, when I was younger and then, uh, now a few times we've been out and hiked and that kind of thing. So did you grow up in that area? Uh, not in this area specifically, but I'm a native to Idaho, uh, Southeast Idaho and Pocatello, Idaho. So what was your upbringing like out there? Um, it was a lot of, uh, camping and hiking and, uh, outdoors kind of things. And then, uh, my father's family is from, uh, mid Missouri and they're, uh, I'm a fifth generation ag, uh, member of ag family. And so I had quite a bit of agricultural background, uh, from an early age. So how did that lead from, from your upbringing in agriculture to, uh, what was the path to where you are now working for Lava Lake? Yeah, that's kind of an interesting one. Uh, 
my father passed away and uh like that door kind of closed for me in my personal life um the ag part of it and so i was kind of had a big hole in in me and uh i was searching for something to fill it and uh i kind of came across this coexistence work when uh i lived in uh west yellowstone montana for about a decade uh near yellowstone national park and and during that that period i i came across the wood river wolf project and then uh brian and kathleen bean who are uh owners of uh lava lake lamb and lava lake land and livestock and uh got involved with them and and found my way back into uh ranching and uh agriculture and uh it kind of worked out for me that way so the wood river wolf project is part of lava lake it uh it was it's uh it's been going for about 14 years uh it's kind of a standalone project uh lava lake was the fiscal uh, uh sponsor for it from 2014 to uh last year um but it's it's a project with a pretty long history and and lava lava lake and brian bean and kathleen are, are founding members of the project so. okay great and what's your role um in i i guess these are new organizations to me, so I'm not sure if I'm going to um, understand fully what you all are doing out there. So if you could kind of give the overview of, of your role and the goals of the project, that'd be great. Yeah, so I have uh, I was a field technician back in 2014, which was my first season, and I actually drove from West Yellowstone, Montana, over here to participate, uh, which was about a four-hour drive. But um so um, in recent history, I've, I've been a field advisor, um, which I just kind of advise uh, the coexistence part of it, the, the non-lethal tools, the, the conflict mitigation tools. Uh, and the last three or four years, I've specifically kind of honed in on Lava Lake and spent most of my time uh, working with uh, Lava Lake land and livestock and their, their project. So basically the goal of the project is uh coexistence uh there's about thirty thousand head of sheep that that graze in the wood river valley uh, over the summer so thirty thousand uh on that property alone or in the entire valley just the entire valley that's a bunch of forest service allotments spread out over i think something like uh a pretty good sized chunk of of land the forest service blm allotments in the sawtooth national forest so it's a it's a big chunk of land that makes more sense um, and so you're focused on essentially the survival and, you know, thriving sheep populations without, um, without having to exterminate the wolf population. That's, you know, 30,000 sheep surrounded by wolves seems like a bad situation. <laughs> so tell me about, you know, what do you guys do in terms of non-lethal methods and, and this coexistence work? Yeah, so it's... Uh... It's kind of a, a process and a, we have a, a system of uh, non-lethal tools that are deployed uh, mostly by the herders. The herders that, that tend to, the band, sheep bands do a, a lot of the work and are supported by the project. But there are uh, things like flashing lights and livestock guardian dogs, uh, noise and uh, flashlights and maybe shooting shooting in the air with a, a firearm to, to make noise. It's all, all pretty simple stuff. But so, pretty effective. Yeah. Is it fair to say that the the methods are sort of um, non-lethal deterrence and just kind of making the, the wolves understand that there's a human presence here before they even get to the sheep herd? 
Yeah, that's correct. That's kind of the idea. The best time to mitigate conflict is before it happens. Uh, and so uh, wolves are very sensitive to human presence and amazingly so. And it, it surprised me um, as I began to work uh, in this field. But um, it doesn't take a lot of a human presence simulation to uh, change their mind about coming in and, and, and taking eating a sheep. So um, do you think that's uh, something that they've always had throughout evolutionary history, or do you think it's a result of the persecution and the, um, you know, the methods throughout the last few hundred years of trying to get rid of wolves that they're so sensitive to humans? Yeah, I think it's a combination of both those things. And um, they're very, secretive and and very aware of their surroundings and and they're probably the best uh cost benefit calculators in, in the animal world they really you know are always calculating is it worth you know going in and trying to eat a sheep or you know that kind of thing so i think it's just left over from uh, their past and our past with them so i don't know much about the wolf uh, population i know that idaho's got plenty of them but um well, that may be debated, but um, what is the kind of, is there connectivity from where you are in the central part of the state up toward the Yellowstone range or are those two disconnected populations? Yeah, I would venture to guess that they're somewhat disconnected, although there is probably some uh, back and forth. Uh, wolves are great travelers. They can really cover some distance and, you know, um, some of the wolves that are collared have gone, you know, into Oregon and California. So I'm sure there is some exchange uh, between the two, but it's probably not as, as regular as what might need be. Are y'all doing anything aside from not um, just not exterminating the wolves? Are you doing anything to encourage their presence or are you just working more on the, the coexistence with the sheep? Like, I guess I'm wondering the folks around you who are also practicing agriculture and raising livestock, um, are they dealing with increased wolf pressure and having to adopt these same techniques? Yes, uh, somewhat, um, not necessarily adopting the same techniques. Um, a lot of folks uh, choose to use lethal control. Um, so, uh, which is, is nothing wrong with that. Um, it's just a different uh, conflict mitigation tool. Um, and I look at them about the same as lethal and non-lethal in the, in the two sides of the same coin. Um, should have equal weight, but um, it does make it challenging um, for us to try to uh, mitigate conflict because what we're trying to do is um, maximize the natural systems, um, say wolves um, kind of depress coyote presence uh, to some degree and also spread out elk uh, and keep elk moving, which is a good thing because two those two things are much bigger problems to uh, the ranch than uh, the wolves ever have been or ever will be. So, yeah, for folks that may not be familiar, it's kind of a counterintuitive idea, but in e ecology, there's this uh, theory of the trophic cascade, which I'm sure, Kurt, you're well aware of, essentially that the apex predator in the system um, serves a role beyond just eating the next food chain or the next level of the food chain. They're also, like you said, they're affecting the behavior of their prey and causing an entire cascade that's beneficial to, to landscapes. 
So the quintessential example is in Yellowstone with the reintroduction of gray wolves, um, kind of did all the things that you talked about with moving elk and sheep, uh, increasing grassland health, things like that, where it, it is kind of a strange idea, but um, it's one of the arguments for keeping wolves on the landscape or reintroducing them to the landscape. They're doing things that the human predators really aren't doing. Is that fair? Yeah, I, that's a pretty fair statement. And uh, the ecological benefit of, of large carnivores and, and wolves specifically are, are far outweigh any any other downside. Um, you know, elk evolved with wolves and, and really need wolves to be at their peak, you know, at their at the top of their game. And they do a lot of a lot of benefit to uh, the ungulate population. So, you know, there's it's about balance. It's it's all about balance. Do you think, again, I, I don't know too much about Idaho and its uh, its wolf situation, but throughout your life growing up there and working there now, um, what has the wolf population been like? Has it been balanced or has it been kind of fluctuating a bunch? Yeah, it certainly has been up and down. And uh, we got to a point over the last couple of years where it was, you know, pretty good, um, a, a good number of wolves, um, especially for us, uh, where we're seeing some benefits from uh, less coyote presence and and less uh, elk presence, um, which re- really beneficial and, and something that uh, was kind of looking forward to trying to, uh, to play with a little bit. Um, but with some of the new uh, regulations and, and the bill SB 1211 that was introduced, I think it's going to be difficult. Um, we seem to be at a, a point where wolves were pretty well situated in, in most ecosystems in Idaho and pretty well spread out. And, you know, so. Tell me about SB 1211. This is something I haven't really been able to dig into much, but um, I've seen it, I've heard it come up a few times. Yeah, so legislature uh, in Idaho basically took away uh, Idaho fishing fishing games ability to manage wolves and changed a bunch of regulations and a bunch of things uh, in favor of taking more wolves. Um, I, I try really hard to stay out of the politics, so um, I try to keep the middle ground. And uh, so I don't I don't really know all that much about it, except for, uh, you know, I, I think it's going to knock back the population some, but I, I don't think it's going to be as bad as what uh, some of the people are, are worried about. Yeah, I was seeing kind of some clickbaity stuff that was saying, you know, Idaho to kill 90% of their wolves, blah, blah, blah. And I, I asked a friend about it, uh, and he said, well, really, they there's a quota that is set, but that doesn't mean that they're actually going to kill 90% of the wolves. The hunter's have the right or the you know i guess agricultural practitioners and hunters have the right to kill a certain amount but uh that doesn't mean they're going to fill that is that kind of how it works yeah it's that's that's a reasonably fair statement um it's a fairly specific skill set to either trap or kill a wolf not just anybody off the street is going to be successful at it uh maybe once um just by accident but to do it over and over and over again is a pretty difficult thing to do. And so there's only a, a small select few people that are, you know, really making an impact. And, and so what are the legal methods of take during the wolf season? 
I uh, now with the with the new rules change, I think it's pretty much everything. Uh, they're kind of viewed as uh, you know the same way a coyote is. Um, pretty much yeah. just about everything. Yeah, I had uh, Dan Flores, who's a wildlife historian, on the show, and he wrote a book on uh, coyotes and about kind of the the methods of extermination. And one of the interesting parts of the book was that uh, wolves were really vulnerable to this kind of of persecution, but coyotes were able to withstand it because of the their ability to. He calls them a, a fish and fusion animal, so they're able to group together and then spread out and evade the kind of, you know, the poisoning and the things that are more effective on wolves, coyotes seem to be able to withstand it. But yeah, with, with wolves, he, he was saying essentially they, they don't act the same, quite the same in that way, so they're they're really much more, more vulnerable to that kind of attack. Um, when you think about, let's say, your landscape that you're working in, do you know what the population is? Do you have a good idea of the count in your area? Yeah, I'm pretty up to uh, date with uh, where wolves are and, and what their counts. And uh, I've worked reasonably close with Idaho Fish and Game Biologists um, over the last few years. And um, they're very guarded with what information they can give me. But um, I get some a very general um, information from them, which really helps. So um, I'm fairly in tune with what's going on in, in at least this small little pocket of Idaho. Are you able to discuss what you think the the numbers are or is that kind of uh, something that you they don't want you to yeah, talk that, about <laughs> that's kind of something that i generally don't talk about but yeah. uh the numbers have been pretty good over the last few years and um you know yeah. reasonably good so that's interesting that seems like another kind of political thing where it's like they don't necessarily want people to i wonder if i'm just speculating here you don't have to affirm this but or confirm this but uh i'm wondering if it's that if people knew how many are actually there they might be alarmed <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, you know, they, they've done a lot of work um, over the last few years to, to get a pretty accurate count with um, something like 800 game cameras spread out wow. through Idaho and then uh, some kind of a formula to, uh, to come up with a number based on the number of captures they get of wolves. So, you know, I, those are pretty good people that are working for uh, Idaho Fish and Game. And I, I know some of the biologists and they really care about their job and, and they're doing a really good job before, uh, Idaho legislator decided to uh, step in and, and take that away from them. It's really disappointing that um, Idaho Fish and Game isn't allowed to manage wildlife like they're like they're supposed to. Yeah, it's um, we've seen a few cases like this recently with um, you know the reintroduction the the vote at least uh, I think it was one Prop one thirteen to reintroduce gray wolves to Colorado and then with some of the black bear hunts being canceled across the. Uh, across the u.s there does seem to be a disconnect between the folks that are working these lands and the folks that are you know voting on these on these subjects i would think that idaho with it being um less populated and with it being you know uh not not a whole bunch of major cities you would think that there would be the the needs of the people would be represented fairly accurately uh, Colorado's a little bit different. You know, you have the Front Range and, and Denver populations voting on subjects that, uh, like with the Wolves, things that they may never actually have to deal with the consequences. Yeah, that's, that's a good statement. And, um, 
you know, the urban rural divide is, is probably wider now than it's ever been uh, throughout history. And, you know, these, these large working landscapes, these large ranches are, are big buffers between uh, the public lands and, and private lands. Uh, and they hold a lot of wa wildlife and are so important um, to uh, people in general, like to recreate in wild places, you know, they, they are, a, they are a very important areas. What is your daily, uh, what does a typical week look like for you? Yeah, during the summer, I, I do a nine to five job uh, in the city to, to pay bills. And then uh, okay. at least one day a week, I do field work. Um, I go out and check on the herders and, and the sheep band and check in with them. And then if there are any problems, I sometimes will stay out uh, for two or three days with the sheep band. Uh, but for the most part, the uh, herder is pretty self-sufficient and that's really something uh, we've tried hard at Lava Lake to, uh, to, to do is to make it uh, kind of one herder and a very small complement of conflict mitigation tools uh, to get the job done without a, a lot of uh, uh, time or effort involved uh, by the herder. So, Have you, uh, in terms of the methods and tools, is this something that's evolving and have y'all been kind of testing out new kinds of deterrence or has it been a pretty stable toolkit? Yeah, it's been reasonably stable. Um, Fox lights have really been the mainstay uh, for us and for the wolf project uh, since about 2014. Um, they work really well and are pretty easy to set up. Um, and then uh, this year at Lava Lake, we came up with a, with a collar design, the leather protective collar. It's like a three inch wide collar uh, composite uh, Kevlar, leather Kevlar composite. Um, it, uh, it gives a little protection for the dog. Um, historically, I've used spike collars um, for protection for the dog. I saw um, that on but, your Instagram. Uh, it was a big old... <laughs> yeah, it's pretty wide, collar. pretty... Yep. And so we added uh, uh, a passive conflict mitigation tool to the collar, which is a blue slow blinking LED, which blinks uh, from dusk to dawn on the dog, which stays with the sheep band. So it's human presence, uh, force magnifier. So they really, they really want to operate in darkness and moonlight. They don't, they don't like any sort of artificial light. Yeah, it's, it's that. And just the, the simulation that there's a human involved in the equation somewhere. Um, and I read several studies that, uh, canines are, are more sensitive to the UV spectrum farther down the UV spectrum than humans. So the, that's why the blue, part of it oh interesting i remember seeing when i was shopping for uh hunting clothes seeing that they don't use uv brighteners in the clothing for that reason yeah mm -hmm. yep okay wow um in uh in terms of predator other predators i guess grizzlies are not really quite in your area right no oh, we don't okay. have a, a grizzly bear uh, population in central idaho you got black bears and mountain lions, though. Yep, black bears, mountain lions, coyote, fox. Are they uh, responsive to the same techniques, or are you kind of mostly focusing on the wolves? What's your, you know, how do you deal with those other predators? Yeah, so wolves are probably the easiest ones to deal with out of the out of that list, really? uh, surprisingly. Yeah, yeah, bears are very smart and habituate really quickly, so they're very hard to. To deal with and they will take sheep um they uh 
depredate on sheep, uh, not frequently, but um, they're only saving graze and the sheep are kind of hard to catch and bears aren't all that athletic. Um, so that's helpful. And then, uh, you know, the cougars are, are pretty responsive to the human presence uh, simulation, the conflict mitigation tools. They, they kind of respect that. They're very, very secretive and, and don't want to be seen or, or uh, run into humans. Um, so that works reasonably well. Uh, and then coyotes are probably the most difficult predator to, to mitigate conflict with. Uh, they're just so smart and habituate so quickly that, you know, it's a very difficult thing to, uh, to, uh, keep them out of sheep uh, sometimes, especially lambs. So they're much bigger problem than wolves. I could see that. Yeah. With the, with the mountain lions, um, well, I guess of all those predators, I've heard that mountain lions can be prone to sometimes um, uh, what they call, I've heard it called pleasure killing or um, some other terms, but where they'll kill more than they actually need to eat. Have you ever seen something like that? I haven't personally um, experienced that, but it, it does happen, at, and with all large carnivores, and I think it, it's more along the lines of, you know, if something's easy to come by, they try to, you know, take advantage of that um, in stockpile, sort of. And they and if I know some humans sperm, that do the same thing. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is interesting. I'm, I'm wondering with the, um, with the wolf population – as it kind of as we figure this out in the different states, especially in the West, what it's going to look like in uh, as they make their way down in in northern Colorado and maybe connect with the uh, Mexican gray wolf down in southern Colorado. Throughout my lifetime, I'm really curious to see where this will go. Uh, what do you think? What's your insight on that? Yeah, it's going to be very interesting. You know, connectivity is super important to these isolated populations. So, you know, that that will be a huge benefit. Uh, and I'm hopeful that uh, Colorado will be able to do, uh, to do it right. I mean, you take some lessons away from some of these other states that have been doing it for 20 plus years. And, and, I'm, and I'm hopeful that uh, things can be a little better. And, uh, you know, Things like a hunting season, uh, lethal control, um, conflict mitigation tools, I mean, they're all going to be important and should have all, all have the same weight and should be considered. Um, you know, I, I would advocate for those things uh, equally. What, uh, how does it affect the hunting season in your experience? You know, I, I know we've got a, I think the largest uh, population of elk currently in Colorado, a lot of people coming from out of state, a lot of people hunting in state. What is that going to look like when you've got, let's say, um, even a small population of wolves across Colorado? Is that going to affect the season length or the number of tags? Yeah, I, I don't know if it will really. I mean, we've had wolves in Idaho for plus 20 years and uh, have the highest population, some of the highest success rates uh, for elk and ever so um and i've i've been hunting in idaho off and on since you know 2009 or 10 or even before that and um you know i really haven't seen any change in seasons or or takes uh, amount so I, I really wouldn't see too much of a change do the elk go quieter that's one thing i've heard that they don't bugle as much when there are wolves around yeah that's kind of one of those 
false things that you hear one of the old wives tales and uh you know i spent a decade in and around the yellow yellowstone ecosystem and and the elk inside the park which is probably some of the highest density uh large carnivores and wolves uh anywhere in the lower 48 bugle like crazy i mean they start way earlier than elk outside the park and and go you know long so that's kind of one of those things that is kind of a, a misnomer and uh and you know i think with the advent with much easier elk calls i think that hunters have contributed to some of that uh elk, elk being quiet because almost everybody owns a something that's pretty easy to bugle with uh you know the primos calls really re revolutionize that that uh bugling ability of most hunters because it's pretty easy and you know you don't have to use a diaphragm and it's it's much easier and i i think sometimes we as hunters maybe call too much and has con we've contributed to that uh more quiet elk outside the park um that makes sense man you should have heard i'm sure you've heard it before but some of the bugles i heard out in the woods this uh this season i was like that's that's not good yeah <laughs> not even close <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think we sometimes overuse it. And I mean, that's okay. I mean, people enjoy doing it and it's fun, I guess, and it's proactive. And but I'm not great at it either, but not always, uh, not always a good technique, I guess. <laughs> it certainly <laughs> takes some, some practice, but uh, some of the newer stuff is much easier than um, like back in the 90s when I was really into it. And, uh, you know, trying to master the diaphragm uh, calls takes a little, little more ability than uh, some of the, some of the cool stuff they have today. Yeah, for sure. Um, so you do hunt. Uh, tell me about, oh, I also saw that you're into Tenkara fly fishing. Uh, that's something I am barely familiar with, but I bet most of the listeners probably don't know what that is. Can you explain that? Yeah, it's uh, without, uh, it's fly fishing without a reel. It's uh, just a, a, a length of, of fly line, basically, um, that is, doesn't change. It's, you know, 10, 12, 13 foot line, but it's basically fly, fly fishing without, without the reel. And it's just a, a single piece bamboo rod? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. Just a fly rod without the ability to reel in or reel out or, or uh, more line. You're just kind of stuck with whatever length of line you put on why make it any harder kurt <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah some would say it's more simple all you have to have to worry about is the is the is the 12 or 13 feet of fly line and and what fly you're putting on there so okay is it uh <laughs> is it uh easier for usually when i see tenkara represented it looks like it's in small headwater streams is it appropriate for bigger bodies of water it, it's it's more difficult because you, you don't have more line. I mean, you can't shoot line out there um, like on big lakes or big bodies of water. So it's it's more of a small stream uh, kind of thing, maybe even smaller fish kind of thing. So, When did you get into that? Uh, I've kind of been into fly fishing for a lot of years, but not really done it a lot. And then the last few years uh, picked up Tinkara. I guess sometime when I was uh, living in, in uh, West Yellowstone, uh, picked it up and didn't really do it a whole lot in the last few years that I've tried to do it more nice yeah I uh when I was about let's see this past summer I was thinking I had to get into you know more traditional archery I've got my my compound but maybe I'll go a little bit more traditional go with a recurve or a you know, a stick bow or whatever all these folks are getting into. But uh, then I got skunked, 
in archery season. I was like, I don't need to make it any more difficult. Right. I'm sticking with the compound for <laughs> <Yeah>. now. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I've done traditional archery since the early nineties, also recurve and then longbow and um, wow. it does up the uh, difficulty quite a bit. So, yeah, I will say, I mean, usually when I'm, when I do have a shot, I'm within 30 yards. So I'm like, Oh, maybe it could do it. Um, I just, I don't want another, yet another factor that could cause me to miss or wound an animal or something like that. I, I need to get better at, uh, you know, the compound first, and then maybe I'll graduate to the traditional. <laughs> yeah. Right. It, uh, it's just one of those things. I probably passed a lot of shots. I probably could have easily made with a compound just for that same fear of, you know, not being able to make the shot and put it where I want to put it. So. Yeah, definitely. Um, let's go, let's rewind a little bit. You know, we talked about, we skipped over a little bit of your, your upbringing and such. I saw that, uh, you had some military service on your, uh, your Instagram somewhere. It mentioned that. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, I did a short stint, uh, 89 to 92, uh, in the United States army, uh, aviation. I was a crew chief on Chinook. Wow. Okay. Well, yeah, I appreciate your service. Um, is that affecting your work at all now or your, your lifestyle out there in Idaho, your military service? Yeah, probably. I kind of look at things from a tactical perspective, uh, most times, especially dealing with, uh, conflict mitigation. Um, so yeah, it certainly has, has made a difference. I could see that. Yeah. That's interesting. When it comes to the, the goals for Wood River Valley and, and for your project, you know, coming at it from that military mindset, I guess, do you have a, a set game plan or long-term goals that you're trying to accomplish? Or is it more like we're monitoring the situation and seeing where this goes? Yeah, it's kind of uh, from year to year uh, when it comes to the Wood River Wolf Project and uh, kind of uh, sometimes reactive. Uh, they have a depredation and then, and then a response. Um, but the last few years, it's been really pretty good about trying to um, get the herders to use some of this stuff proactively and head, head off the, the problems before they occur. Um, so, yeah, it's kind of evolved over the, the years uh, to try to be more proactive. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I'm wondering, you know, again, long-term what it's going to look like if, uh, if more and more folks start having, uh, you know, success with these kind of methods and if the populations get more connected, I guess my concern is that there'll be an overcorrection like what we've seen in the short term where states encourage wolf population and then they swing way back the other way <laughs> you know what i mean and try to get rid of a bunch of them and it's like how do we get to a, a stable population where where coexistence is um encouraged in a larger segment of the population yeah that would be ideal um it's much easier to uh to manage if you're not dealing with chaos all the time which is basically when you start removing wolves um, from a pack, you end up with, you know, somewhat chaotic uh, situation, depending upon what members are, are removed, because they're, they're all so um, dependent on each other uh, to make a living out there that um, you can really, really cause some problems. Um, Tell me about that, about the pack structure. I, I hadn't really thought about that. 
Yeah, so, you know, the, the, you really have a wolf pack is like a family. They, they function, you know, they, they all have their part to play and uh, their jobs that they do during the hunt. And some are probably more successful than others. And I'm um, just like uh, we humans, um, some are better at things than others and they all have their own jobs. And when you start selectively uh, removing members from the pack, um, you know, the pack becomes weaker, you know, and, and may look at livestock as maybe a little bit easier way to make a living than they, they would if they were a, were a stable pack. So when people go to, um, to hunt wolves, are they thinking about that? Are they trying to remove certain members of the pack or are they just trying to get a shot in general? Yeah, basically I, it's all, just about everything. They try to try to take an entire pack, uh, with the exception of, and it seems to be, uh, the way they're doing things is, is the collared wolves, the GPS collared wolves, they try to leave and for them to go and go and reconnect um at a later date with more wolves and then they have a second opportunity for the lifetime of the of the collar is that what the judas wolf is yeah that's exactly what judas okay. wolf was referring to you know i had heard that phrase the judas wolf and i'm like what could that possibly mean <laughs> right okay. yeah so um it's a wolf pack that uh might have been involved in a depredation and and at that depredation site very often they'll they'll set uh traps and and trap trap a, a wolf and then collar that wolf with a gps collar um that they then can track and and then find that pack uh whenever uh, they want to wow yeah that's uh man i it's they really don't stand a chance against methods like that yeah that's a very effective means of uh of removing a pack, um, aerial gunning and GPS collars is, uh, is pretty, pretty sure thing. Yeah. The aerial gunning is, uh, tough, man. I, I feel I have mixed feelings about that. I mean, in general, I tend to fall on the side of wanting more wolves on the landscape based on, uh, my limited knowledge, but the aerial gunning, I just feel like it's, um, you've got a good chance of, of wounding wolves with bad shots and stuff. It's, it's just really non-discerning and a little bit extreme to me, but I understand that it's effective. Yeah, it's, it's very effective and that's why they use it. And, and all those things you just mentioned are a, are a big possibility, you know, wounding and, and that kind of thing I'm sure happens uh, more than, than we know. Um, yeah. They're trying to stop a, uh, a wolf cull right now in British Columbia, I believe. Have you seen that? Yeah, I think so, off and on. Yeah, I know they were talking about aerial gunning being one of the methods that they were using, and um, yeah, I don't know. That's just, it sure is effective. It flushes them out and, you know, gives you a lot of shot opportunities during the day and things like that, but um, a lot of pain and suffering as well. Um, tell me about, I guess, the role of of humans now has in a lot of ways replaced wolves. Uh, if that's fair to say as, as apex predators, as elk and deer hunters, do you think that it's a sustainable, you know, the hunting seasons that we have and the amount of people that we have hunting out in Western States, do you think that it's something we can sustain with reintroduced wolf populations or do we need to make more room for them to fill their ecological niche? 
Yeah, I think it's sustainable. And, and certainly um, in Idaho and these other Western states that have had wolves, uh, you know, since the, the mid to late 90s uh, and probably have always had wolves, um, you know, it's it's not been a problem. And uh, there's plenty of opportunity for the, for us that want to go out and, and, and hunt and participate in that. And uh, I, I really haven't seen any any downside to wolves in Idaho. Um, in the places I go, uh, there are a lot of elk around, a lot of big bulls in Yellowstone National Park and all over uh, the West still. So. so it's really, the hunting is not much of a concern. It's really just the livestock um, that is kind of the biggest impediment. Yeah, certainly the biggest consideration um, because wolves will take livestock, uh, you know, if the opportunity presents itself. And um, there's certainly about survival and, and doing whatever the easiest thing to do is. And, and sometimes that's livestock. So I, I think that's the, the bigger the bigger problem. Um, you know, there are some elk populations that are, are somewhat down and, and not to uh, idle fishing game objectives. But if you look at those places really hard, a lot of it is, you know, the the ecosystem isn't really um, a good place for elk to make a living. So uh, there's a lot of factors that play into that kind of stuff. But here locally, uh, we have a lot of elk and we've had a lot of wolves and the, the two things, you know, can coexist really nicely. And I, I think they really, wolves complement elk and, and you know, uh, make make the elk herd stronger and cull the weak and just recently, I think this week or last week, they found uh, chronic wasting disease in Idaho. So, you know, what better tool to uh, help mitigate some of the disease problem, uh, chronic wasting disease, than these large carnivores that, that do that for a living? I mean, wolves really could be a big uh, solution for that. Uh, that's a great point. I hadn't thought of that at all, actually. Chronic wasting disease, for the folks who don't know, is a uh, is a highly transmissible disease not to humans but between um, deer species and has been found in several states now um, there are regulations keeping folks from transporting deer carcasses from state to state for this reason because um, it's it's transmitted through the prions which are in the brain and neurological tissue so the spinal cord brain tissue you've got to get remove all of that before you transport them uh, I guess it's fair to say that if wolves were predating on those animals they would be eating all that tissue and scavengers would come and eat it so it wouldn't be very transmissible right it's certain less than that i i don't know if it would stop it but it certainly is nature's way of of dealing with those sorts of problems wow yeah i don't i man i haven't heard anyone talk about wolves as a um an aid to the spread of of chronic wasting disease that's that's really interesting. Yeah, you know, we're really looking at at wolves as a management tool, um, especially with livestock and, and and ranches and and some of the problems that are are bigger problems than depredations, uh, like the coyotes, which we talked about, and then also elk can be a big problem on these big working ranches where they come in and and hit haystacks and and alfalfa fields and you know getting getting those elk to move or a lesser number of elk is is very uh beneficial to um ranching uh, can be they do a lot of damage to fences and and hay fields and haystacks so 
another uh, another thing that is cited in the wolf conversation is you know the the folks that are out recreating on public lands. Have you ever had you know wolves have been in Yellowstone for a while now? To my knowledge, no one's ever been killed by a wolf there. I might be wrong, uh, but have you ever had any direct or indirect experience that you know makes you worried about recreating on in places where there are wolves? Yeah, I've had the exact opposite. Um, I've had many encounters uh, when I lived uh, and was in the Yellowstone ecosystem uh, for about a decade and did a lot of wildlife photography and so had quite numerous uh, encounters with wild wolves uh, and it's just they're just not the evil big bad wolf that we're all kind of brought up on Um, and the time I spent in Yellowstone really kind of changed some of the some of my personal dogma that that these large carnivores are are you know just uh, evil killing machines that's just not the case you know they all have their place and they're ecological uh a much bigger benefit than than detriment and and humans really you know as far as wolves go have very little of the fear um they they fear us way way more than uh than uh we should fear them yeah that makes sense i you know i've I've been talking to people on on and off the podcast about predators because i'm new out to the west and spending a lot of time in these landscapes with uh, mountain lions and black bears of course uh, not dealing with grizzlies and wolves, but you know, the more I learn about them and the more folks I talk to you, talk to like you, the more that I wish we, uh, we still had those predators in the landscape, even though it's nice to walk out in the dark and not have to worry if I'm going to walk into a grizzly. Um, you know, yeah, that's, that's a whole different, uh, thing. Um, you certainly, certainly have to respect all wild animals. They they can do harm to you at, at any point. Uh, but I don't think you should really fear them. Um, uh, Yellowstone, you know, what an incredible, it, it really is one of the only places in the lower 48 with these intact, um, food chains, I think, where you've got apex predators. What did you, what else did you learn in your time there that you think could be applied to uh, working lands or public lands? Yeah, um, that's kind of a hard question. Um, You know, that these systems are, you know, have been working for eons and it's about balance. You know, um, you have too many elk on any landscape and they're detrimental. Um, So, you know, these large carnivores all have a role to play in the disease control and the population control and, and even um, keeping elk moving is beneficial to an ecosystem, you know, so they're not all camped out in, in one spot, but they're always constantly moving, um, spreading out their impact all over the landscape rather than these small pockets of use, um, which elk really are pocket animals. If given the, the choice, they will, you know, stay in small places that are really good, uh, rather yeah. than spread out. Yeah, that's interesting. I guess, you know, I just think about most of our, our public lands are, um, you know, I think they're being managed fairly well from what I can tell in terms of, like you said, the state agencies seem to have, um, fairly good science and of course, you know, good people, who care about the the future of these lands, but there's often 
components missing from the ecosystem. Either the water cycle has been disrupted, the food chain's been disrupted, the connectivity's been disrupted. There's always something wrong. And uh, Yellowstone is one of those places that uh, we've managed to, for the most part, leave a lot of those systems uh, uninterrupted. And the result is pretty incredible in terms of wildlife. Yeah, Yellowstone is really one of those special places where, you know, things are working kind of the way they're supposed to. I mean, there are some some impacts that we humans have, certainly uh, just from numbers of people going in there. But if you get away from a road, um, it's it's pretty pristine and and the way it was, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago. So um, it's one of those special places that um, we could probably learn a lot as a species ourselves uh, that, you know, maybe we shouldn't mess with stuff quite as much as we like to. Are you familiar with the American Prairie Reserve Project? A little bit, yeah. Yeah, I, I spoke with uh, Allison Fox from APR in a previous episode, and that's a landscape not too far from Yellowstone where they're really trying to set aside huge parcels of land to encourage um, what we're talking about. You know, they, they want it to look like it did when Lewis and Clark first came through that area, and they're talking about, you know, if you build it, they will come essentially with, with the predators. They're saying, you know, we're not going to, we're not going to put bears there, but if, uh, if there's wildlife there and there's space there, the bears are going to find it and the wolves are going to find it. And, um, you know, they've got pretty ambitious goals, but it's a project that I really think is, has got the right idea. Um, and you know, they have, they have their issues with, um, agricultural conflict and with folks that don't, uh, agree necessarily with what they're trying to do, but um, I don't know. I think it's a really interesting experiment, if nothing else. Yeah, that, that whole concept is pretty cool. That uh, returning uh, that landscape to a more natural state uh, is is really a good thing. And and you know, I think a more natural management style would be a really a good thing for some of these wildlife uh, managers. Um, uh, probably never going to happen, but it, you know, if we could let some of these natural systems uh, work the way they're supposed to work. Uh, I think things would be better off. Um, you know, there's a fellow that is running the depredation tags, um, runs the hunts out on the ranch. And there's typically have been probably 400 head of elk that winter out there and, and cause some problems. And uh, we've had a pretty good wolf presence for the last two or three years. And this uh, fall, he called me and, and said, you know, where are all the elk? Um, you know, there's only 60 head out here and the hunters just aren't, aren't seeing them. So um, the wolves were moving those elk and keeping them moving and they're not all camped out on uh, the alfalfa field or, you know, they're on the private property. So that's, that's, that's really beneficial. And, and I would really like the opportunity to try to uh, manage uh, some of that using uh, large carnivores, uh, the coyotes and, and elk. Um, I don't know if we're going to have that chance just because the numbers I think are going to decrease enough that we maybe won't have the wolf presence that we've had, but I'm hopeful we can. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, for someone like me trying to hunt, you know, over the counter, highly pressured units on public land, um, I would love for the elk to be moving around a little bit more, <laughs> you know, it's, yeah, uh, it, it's hard to find them sometimes. Yeah, it certainly it's it, it lends a level of difficulty because uh, you know a lot of times people driving these these forest service roads aren't going to see a lot of elk. You have to get out there and get in the back country and and do a little more work. Uh, and 
you know, where the elk are spread out, it's, and the numbers are certainly going to be a little bit lower, but, um, you know, here in my part of Idaho, there are elk everywhere. I'll come in there next season. Yeah, come on out. <laughs> um, so, I, you know, you mentioned something there in terms of the the management. It made me think that, you know, the the previous solutions when, when folks settled these lands and pioneered these lands was uh, a more controlled kind of engineered approach. Like, let's, let's uh, remove the things that are out of our control or put them in our control from everything like we talked about, from the water cycle to the wildlife. And I think more and more people are realizing from environmental degradation that uh, they really need to adopt more of a biomimicry approach and let nature work the way it's intended to. Um, otherwise, you know, we just can't we just can't manage it sustainably. And predators are part of that for sure. Um, you know, it's it's going to be really interesting um, to see what the future of agricultural lands looks like, I think, in the next few generations with the regenerative agriculture movement and with the, uh, you know, just the spread of information from folks like yourself to see how these land, how the management of these places changes. Yeah, right. And uh, really the love of agriculture is what brought me into this work. And, um, you know, I really, really uh, think that we need to do what we can to help uh, preserve some of these large working landscapes, these these large Western ranches that are huge buffers between, you know, civilization and uh, our public lands. And, you know, the alternative probably is somebody builds million dollar homes on that landscape and, and if the rancher were to go away. So, you know, I'm really kind of dedicated to trying to do what I can to, uh, you know, mitigate some of that and, and try to, to provide some solutions and, and things when it comes to dealing with large carnivores. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, I appreciate uh, the conversation, Kurt. I think your work sounds really fascinating. Um, if people want to learn more about what you're doing or about uh, the, the coexistence ideas, where should they go? Yeah, so you can follow me on Instagram at uh, Wilderness Trails Project, and then Kurt Holson on Facebook. I, I post almost exclusively just coexistence stuff uh, work, and then you can look up the Wood River Wolf Project uh, has a website that has a lot of good information on. So awesome! Yeah, I'll post that stuff uh, with the episode so people can find that. Yeah, perfect. And then uh, if you want to eat some really good lamb, you can look up Lava Lake Lamb. Uh, they ship uh, nationwide, I believe. So, yeah, check it out. Cool. All right. Thanks, Kurt. I really appreciate it and look forward to, to seeing uh, what you keep doing up there. I'll be following along. Yeah, cool. And, and thanks for having me on, Dylan. I, I really like the ethos of this uh, podcast. It's really a really a cool thing. The natural systems and, and, and sustainability are uh, really important things, I think, moving forward. So doing a I great job. That. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I appreciate that. I'm I'm trying, you know, I'm learning alongside with uh with the folks that are listening and I I hope that that's, you know, continues to be the the theme of it. Um I try not to, you know, not to sound too preachy or anything like that cuz I don't know what the hell I'm talking about half the time, but uh I like meeting folks like you who are getting, you know, hands boots on the ground experience so I can kind of you know, talk through and think through these ideas. 
Yeah, right. That's how it works. We share our experiences and and hopefully uh, the two of us grew a little bit from uh, that, that sharing experience. So I'm going to go uh, see what else I can find out about the wolves and chronic wasting disease. I'm really intrigued by that idea. Yeah, I, I really think that, you know, is going to be an important management tool or could be. Um, I don't know if anybody will consider it. And I don't know all the implications. I'm not a biologist and there may be some drawbacks, but that's certainly nature's way of dealing with those sort of things with uh, deformities and, and disease and, you know, those sort of things. So, For sure. All right, cool stuff, man. Kurt, uh, appreciate it and uh, take care, man. I hope we hope to talk to you again in the future. Yeah, and we do this again sometime, Dylan. I, I really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me on. 